You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So Psalm 16, if you can go ahead and grab your Bible and turn there, uh, that would be really, really good to have that out and open. And one more thing as you're getting there, uh, Ryan Kearns last week, we presented Ryan Kearns uh, for eldership. And I want to just describe again what that means and what part you play in that as a church family. Over the last 18 months, we have been doing the, your current elders have been doing the hard work of just assessing and making sure that all of the qualifications for elders, you know, are in place. And we are at this point, 18 months in, feel great about that. We feel like Ryan meets all of those things. And uh, so we presented him last week, which then invites you into the process. We have another like now four to six week window where as a church family, we want you to be in on that. So for you to get to know Ron, make sure you know him. If you don't know him, grab coffee with him at some point over the next few weeks would be great. And uh, and if you know something that we don't know about Ron, like I said last week, if you've seen him rob 7-Eleven, anything like that, for you to make sure you let us know. And uh, that way we would know that. But apart from us finding something that we didn't know in the next four to six weeks, probably in, in late March, we'll be installing Ryan as one of our next elders. We're really excited for that. Okay, Psalm 16. Let me jump into that by saying this. We are in a couple of week uh, set of sermons called Enjoying Jesus Together. And that in a lot of ways is kind of our phrase for the year and really maybe even for the extended life of our church, enjoying Jesus together. We hope this is a phrase that in 2018 sinks down into the bones and marrow of our church family. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One reason is, is because I just think a lot of people carry some misconceptions about God about what God's after, what God wants from us and for us in this life. I think a lot of people come to God and have been seduced into this way of thinking that that they see God and they think God and kind of the scriptures in general frame our life like this. It's either Jesus or it's joy. You need to to choose which one of those two you're, you're going to take. A lot of people see God and they think God is saying, If you wanna follow Jesus, great, but you're gonna have to forsake your joy if you follow Jesus. Or if you're gonna follow your joy, that's great, but you're gonna have to forsake Jesus if you do that. This is how a lot of us come to the Bible thinking the Bible sees the Christian life like this. And what I'm trying to do is just spend some time convincing us that that is not how the Bible frames the Christian life. The, the, The scriptures do not talk about the Christian life as if it's either Jesus or it's joy. It's either holiness or it's happiness. That's not how the Bible frames it. The Bible frames the Christian life like this. It it invites us to come and get our joy in Jesus. That's the framing of the Bible. It's an invitation to come and get Jesus as our joy. It's Jesus as our joy. It's, It's not happiness or holiness. It's ultimate happiness in our holiness. This is the way the Bible talks about the Christian life. When you come to Jesus, there is no doubt Jesus is a fork in the road for every human being. There are going to be many things you lose as you follow Jesus. But here's the great news. Joy is just not one of those things. It's just not one of the things that, that following Jesus costs us. The Bible doesn't call us to forsake our joy as we pursue Jesus. It calls us to come and get Jesus who is our joy. That's how the Bible sees the Christian life. Now, let me just remind you what joy is. We talked about this last week. Sam Storm says this about joy. It's a deep, durable delight in God that ruins you for anything else. 
the scriptures are saying to you, inviting you, hey, will you come get this deep, durable delight, pleasure, satisfaction in God that will ruin you for everything else? Will you, will you please come and enjoy God like that? that? That is the invitation of the scriptures. Now, why is this so important? John Wesley made a, a really profound observation a couple of hundred years ago when he said this. He said, how uncomfortable a condition must a person be in who, having fear but not the love of God, has only the toils and not the joys of Jesus. He has enough of Jesus to make him miserable, but not enough to actually make him happy. Now that is the exact thing I want us to avoid as a church. I want us to get over like halfway Christianity, like coming to Jesus with about half of us so that we get all of the bad end of the stick. We get all the, the hardships of following Jesus without the joy of Jesus. I want us to press all the way into Jesus where we can find the fountain of living water. We, we can find the one in whom is fullness of joy. I want us to press all the way into Jesus so that we can actually enjoy him. That's where we're headed. This is our hope in 2018. So let me jump back to Psalm 16, verse 11. This has been kind of our home base over the last two weeks. And let me just read this again to you. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me. This is the psalmist talking to God. You make known to me, oh God, the path of life. Oh God, it's in your presence, in yours. Nowhere else can we find this. It's in your presence. There is fullness of joy. And oh God, it's at your right hand and it's only there. It's at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, when you think about Psalm 1611, there are no commands in this particular verse. When you boil Psalm 1611 down, it's not a command, it's a declaration of truth. It's telling us something about the location of joy. Where are you going to find pleasures forevermore? Where are you going to find the fullness of, of joy? The only place we are going to find those things are in God. The happiest being in the universe, it's the only place we're gonna find pleasures forevermore and, and our joy. And embedded into this declaration of truth in Psalm 1611 is an invitation to come and get Jesus as our joy, to come and experience God as the joy that our joy-thirsty hearts long for. It's an invitation to come and get God like that. It's an invitation to do what Psalm 34, 8 invites us to do. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So Psalm 1611 has embedded into it the invitation of Psalm 36, 8, this invitation to drink from the river of God's delight to come to God like that. And Psalm 1611 and the Bible, it's not just an invitation to come and get Jesus as our joy. It's actually commanded in the Bible to find your joy in Jesus. It's a command in the Bible. This is Psalm 37 verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command to come to God and delight your heart in God. This is Philippians chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Philippians 4, four could also be translated. Be happy in the Lord always. Again, I will say be happy. It's a command to find your joy in God. So today I wanna just think through Psalm 1611 again. And I wanna try to answer two questions that flow out of Psalm 1611. Here are the two questions. 
how do we enjoy Jesus? Like, what does that experientially feel like and look like? How do we do that? And then the second question is, why do we enjoy Jesus? So the how of like, what does that feel like and look like? And the why, why is it so important that our hearts are enjoying Jesus? Why is that? So we'll take the first one, how to enjoy Jesus. And first of all, I just wonder how many of us think about God this way. How many of us think of God as a person to be enjoyed? My just observation in watching people, you know, follow the Lord, I I think most people have this sense of like when they think of God, they definitely see God as a person to be obeyed, as a person to be feared and revered. I think people generally see that, that part of, and all those things are true, by the way. But my experience tells me that a lot of people just, when we think of enjoyment and God together, those two things just don't really go well. We get really confused when those two things go together. I mean, think of it this way. I think that if, if we put the word enjoy here, and then we put the word steak there, I mean, we kind of get a sense of what that means, right? I mean, there, there's a, there's a, There's a connection between what it looks like to enjoy that steak and God and enjoyment. When we put the word enjoyment by your favorite movies, we get that. There's a sense of like, I know what it feels like to enjoy a movie. When you put enjoy by great scenery, there's a sense in which we know what what it feels like to be on the banks of the Grand Canyon and for your heart to just explode into awe and enjoyment as you look at that. When I put the word enjoy next to catching a big bass, I know what that feels like. It feels great. I love that. I I get how those things connect. But when we put enjoy by the word God, this is where it gets really strange to us. Confusion has a way of setting in. Like those two words in many of our minds just don't go together. So so how how do we enjoy God? What, What does it look like to enjoy God? What does it look like to drink from the river of God's delight? What does that look like? When it comes to the enjoyment of God, I think it's helpful to see every other joy as a signpost pointing us toward the enjoyment of God. Every other joy that you experience in your life serves as a signpost so that you don't, you don't camp out at the sign. You go all the way to what it's pointing to, and that's God. So think about this the next time you bite into a good steak. When I, when I taste a steak, now, and just think about the amazing, what God has done, even in the, the, the creation of this. He's created something as good as a good steak. And he's given you taste buds to experience the flavor of that. I, when I bite into a good steak, I, like literally every time I do that, my mind is blown. I ask myself the question in every one of those moments, how can food taste that good? How is it possible? Like if you're vegan, you shouldn't be. You, you, need to know, you, you, need to, you need to know that experience right there. How, how is that possible? Now, when that happens, we're not, it's not that joy in that moment and pleasure and delight is not meant to terminate on itself. It is meant to take us through that moment all the way to God. See, the reason that moment with the stake exists is so that when you read Psalm 34, verse eight, and you see the Bible say, taste and see that the Lord is good. You have something to base that on. 
You, that's the, that stake is the signpost that you can now enjoy God like that. But when you think of why, the, why God has created intimacy, that is a signpost pointing us beyond that moment all the way to God and the delight to be found in God. When you think about the reason God has given you that incredible scenery, it's to point us beyond that moment to the beauty and all that is found in God. I heard a guy illustrate it one time with a trip to Disney. He said, can you imagine loading up your family and you're gonna make the drive to Disney and you get about a hundred miles outside of Disney and you see a massive billboard and it's got all the characters on it. Mickey's on there, the princesses are on. I mean, they're all there. And all of a sudden you stop the car you tell the family to get out, you pitch your tent and you announce to them, we have arrived at Disney. We are here. The foolishness of that moment is the foolishness at stopping at a stake in your enjoyment. It's stopping at the signpost rather than allowing the signpost to take you all the way what it's designed to take you to, namely God himself. Every joy you've ever felt on earth is a signpost pointing us to the pleasure to be found in God. Now, when you think about what, what delighting yourself in God or enjoying God is like, the experience of it, I think maybe the best illustration of it would, would be to think about what it means to enjoy people. So let's just play this out. I heard a guy do this at one point. I think it's a really good way to just think about what it would be to enjoy God. Think about the kindest person you know. Just get that person in your mind, the kindest person that you know. Think about the most loving person you know. Think about the most truthful person that you know. The most generous person that you know. Think about the most compassionate person. I mean, their heart just bleeds with you when your heart's bleeding. Think about the most compassionate person you know, the most empathetic person you know, the most optimistic and joyful person you know. I mean, they just have such a buoyant sort of hope and joyfulness about them. Think about the meekest person you know, the most courageous person you know, the wisest person you know, the most articulate person you know, the wittiest person that you know, the most peaceful person you know, the most patient person that you know. I mean, get these people in your mind, the most forgiving person that you know, the strongest person that you know, the most tender-hearted person that you know. Get all those people in your mind. Think of all those people. Now combine all those people into one person. And then take that one person, all these beautiful attributes that have combined in them and raise those attributes to perfection. It's not now a distorted view of a love of God. It's not a distorted compassion. It's a perfect compassion, a perfect truthfulness, a perfect love, a perfect empathy, a perfect joy. And then imagine this person and all of these attributes being perfectly complemented to one another so that as they play out, they, they play out in, in perfect unity, in a perfect sort of a way. They're exercised in perfect proportion to one another. That is giving us a sense of the enjoyment that can be found in God. He is that being, and he invites us in to enjoy him in that sort of a way. This is the how. How do we enjoy God? Every joy that we have here on this earth is meant to be a signpost pointing us to the pleasure to be found in God. And let's deal with the why. The why. Why does the Bible command us to enjoy Jesus? Why is it so persistent in that command? 
Why is it so persistent in that invitation that draws us in to experiencing God like this, to enjoying Jesus? Now we could talk a lot about this. I just wanna run through three reasons with you. Why the Bible is so persistent in its call for us to be people who have our hearts satisfied in God. Three reasons. Number one, here's the first reason. Joy in God is how we fight sin. Joy in God is the key. It's, it's the most important thing we can do to fight sin. Delighting yourself in God is the most important way that you can, you can arm yourself against temptation in your life. It's interesting. If you've ever read the Old Testament, it does not take a lot of reading in the Old Testament to realize the people of Israel are really good at sinning. I mean, they're, they're good at it. I mean, they're not playing around with it. They, they do it in a lot of different ways. They're creative with it. They are really good sinners. You just read the Old Testament and it is on full display for you to see. But it's amazing in Jeremiah chapter two, God boils all of their sinning down into two evils. In other words, he takes all of the kind of presenting areas of sin, all the way sin presents itself up here. He drills all the way down to bedrock. And he says in Jeremiah 2, let me show you what's under. Let me show you the sin beneath the sin. What's under all of these creative ways of sinning in the people of God. He says it this way in Jeremiah 2. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Or, uh, uh, desolate, declares the Lord. Now the question is, shocked at what? What should we be shocked at according to God in Jeremiah 2? Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you know it's a lot more than two things that they've done wrong against God, right? But he's saying, you get it down to bedrock, here are the two evils that are fueling and making possible all of this other sin. Here are the two evils. They've committed two things against me. What are the two evils? Number one, they have forsaken me the fountain of living water. Picture God as a fountain, as the source of fresh, living, satisfying water. He's saying here that I, I alone can satisfy your joy thirsty heart. I alone can do that. And, and sin is, is this moment of forsaking Jesus as, as your source of satisfaction. It's turning from God as the source of living water that can satisfy our joy thirsty heart. He's saying, this is what sin is. Deep down at the bedrock level, this is the evil that's making all of this other sin possible. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And then he says, here's the second thing I have against them. The second evil. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So sin number one, down there at the bedrock level, making all this other sin possible. You've turned from me as the source of your satisfaction, God's saying. Here's the evil, here's the, here's the wrong deep down. You've turned from me as the source of your satisfaction. Sin number two, you've gone looking for pleasure in other places. You're trying to satisfy your heart in other ways. And these other ways, these other places, he's calling these broken cisterns. And he's calling them a broken cistern because they just can't hold the joy that our hearts want. When we go to them, we're always gonna be disappointed. They don't have the capacity to satisfy your heart like God alone does. That's why they're broken cisterns. So he's saying, here's what's underneath all of these other sins. You've turned from me, the source of living water of satisfaction, and you're pursuing you're pursuing that pleasure and that delight in all of these other things, all of these broken cisterns that can't hold the water. 
This is what sin looks like. This is what sin is. This is deep down on a bedrock level, all of our problems in life. What we're trying to satisfy our joy hungry hearts in places that can't satisfy it. So this is why one pastor in summarizing Jeremiah chapter two said this. This is a good summary of sin. When we sin, why we sin. Here's what he says. Sin's what people do, what we do, when our hearts aren't satisfied in God. Now, sail on that for a minute. Think about that. Sin is what we do when our hearts aren't satisfied in God. When our hearts have turned from the fountain of living water, our hearts can't help but pursue broken cisterns to try to satisfy it. Our hearts are too hungry for joy, too hungry for pleasure, too hungry to delight. So when we're not finding our delight in God, who alone can satisfy us, our hearts turn to all of these other places, all of these broken cisterns in a hope that they will satisfy us. This is how temptation works in our life. Listen to John Piper as he describes how temptation, the voice of temptation, how it plays out in your life and mine. He says it this way, the power of sin is the power of deceit. Sin has power through promising a false future. In temptation, sin comes to us and says, the future with God on his narrow way is hard and unhappy, but the way that I promise is pleasant and satisfying. The power of sin, the power of temptation is in the power of this lie. His or Satan's aim is to subvert trust by influencing us to believe that the promise of sin is more satisfying than the promise of God. Now that is how sin plays itself out in your life. It's how it comes to you. It comes to you and says, there's more hope in this sin than there is in God. There's more satisfaction gonna be found in this sin than there is in God. The power of temptation is in the power of this promise, that there's more to be enjoyed in sin than there is to be enjoyed in Jesus. Like temptation comes to you with a voice. It has a voice. There's more to be enjoyed in this home. So just buy it. In this, in this moment of pornography, so just do it. In this affair, so just run after it. In this fill in the blank, than in God. That's how temptation, it comes to us. So if sin is what we do when our hearts aren't satisfied in God, the best way to fight against sin is to keep our hearts satisfied in God. The number one thing you can do to arm yourself against sin is to keep your hearts wholly satisfied in God, enjoying God, delighting in God. Let me illustrate this with Greek mythology. We've used this illustration at, at times in the past. Let me just bring it back out. I think it's such a helpful way to summarize so much of this. During one of their journeys, Ulysses and his men, they were passing by the infamous islands of the Sirens. Now, if you know your Greek mythology, which I kind of hope you don't, but if you do, (laughs) Sirens had the face of a woman, the body of a bird, and they loved to eat people. I mean, generally they make great friends, right? I mean, this is a siren. And as sailors would sail past this particular island, the Sirens would begin to sing. And they had the sweetest voice. It was, it was such a beautiful song that they could sing. It was so beautiful that it would cause sailors to sell their ships into the islands. They would crash into the, into the islands and the sirens would then eat them. They would slaughter them. They, they would have their picnic right there at the, at the banks of the island. And so Ulysses knew the danger. 
He warned his crew of these sweet songs and he warned the crew, man, the sirens are gonna eat us if we, if we crash into us, so we can't do that. So, so he warned them, he, he knew of the danger and he gave his, his crew earplugs and he had them fasten the earplugs into his ears. And then he commanded the crew to row for their lives. And whatever happens, they could not listen to Ulysses as they sailed past the island. They could listen to no command. They were commanded to get past the island. Do not sail into it. But Ulysses didn't want to put in the earplugs. He wanted the sweet song. He loved the sweet song of the sirens. So rather than taking the earplugs, he tied himself to the mast of the ship. So think about this. His heart wanted everything about the sweet singing of the sirens. He would have gladly have jumped from the ships to his slaughtered if he wasn't tied to the mast of the ship. You see the picture? This is how he dealt with the, with the alluring song of the sirens. Now, Jason was another figure in Greek mythology. And he, his crew was also passing the exact same island, but he approached it much differently. He also warned his crew of the seductive song. He warned his crew of what the, the sirens wanted, that if they crash into the island, they're all going to be slaughtered. But, but he didn't bring earplugs and he didn't bring rope to tie himself to the mast. Instead, he brought a man named Orpheus. And Orpheus was a musician of incomparable talent. Like when, when he played his music, it just filled the air with this breathtaking sound. It was the most beautiful music you could possibly find. So as the island grew near and the sirens started singing, Jason didn't say, put in your earplugs, everybody. He didn't tie himself to the mask. He looked at Orpheus and he said, said play your best song. And when Orpheus started playing his best song, his superior song, the sirens' sweet but poisonous song lost all of its tempting power. Now, let's apply that to temptation now, how this works itself out. There are one of two ways that we're all going to deal with temptation in our life. One is illustrated by Ulysses, right? It's our joy-thirsty hearts want the fleeting pleasure of sin. So what are we gonna do to keep our hearts from running after the fleeting pleasures of sin? We're gonna put in earplugs. We're gonna tie ourselves to the mast, right? Our hearts want it. We're just gonna put on all of these external sort of boundaries and parameters to keep us from doing what our hearts actually want to do. That's one way of fighting sin. I think it's a bad way. Over time, it doesn't work. But here's the other way, illustrated by Jason. We can allow our joy-thirsty hearts to drink from the river of God's delight. We can listen to the sweet and satisfying song that Jesus plays for us. We can allow ourselves to be satisfied in Jesus. We can glut our heart in God to enjoy the beauty of God. And the more our hearts are enjoying Jesus, delighting in Jesus, the less attractive sin then appears to us. The only sure way to keep yourself from sin is to have your heart satisfied in God. To, to drink from the river of his delights, to, to enjoy Jesus. The enjoyment of God is the only way to keep our hearts from drinking out of broken cisterns. This is why the Puritans used to say, delighting in Jesus is the main business of our lives. It's not a side business. 
It's not just a thing that we do. It is the business of our lives, keeping our hearts satisfied, content, happy in God. Matthew Henry went on to say, here is why the the joy in God, enjoying Jesus is so important. It arms us against the assault of our spiritual enemies and puts our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. The only way you make yourself immune to temptation is for your heart to be satisfied in God. That's the only way. It's the only way we fight against sin in the long haul is by enjoying Jesus. But why else should we enjoy Jesus? Joy in God is how we love God. It's how we love God. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38, Jesus is asked a question. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Here's his answer. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, that passage right there, in a lot of ways, frames for us the purpose of of our lives. One way you could talk about the purpose of your life is to love God. that's, That's what God has put us on the planet to do is to love God. Now the question becomes, how do we love God? How do we do that? And the essence of loving anyone, any person, the essence of loving a person, namely God, is not in our doing, but in our delighting. Delighting in someone is the primary way that you love someone. Now, you might be thinking of a verse like John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. On the surface, that seems like Jesus is saying, love of him, it is our doing. It is keeping his commandments. But notice in that passage, he's actually distinguishing between the two things. He's saying, if you love me, you're gonna do this. You're gonna keep my commandments. But but there's a distinguishment of, of these two phrases. When you think about the first part of that, if you love me, that's the root. This is the, what's deep down in us. If you love me, and then here's the fruit. If you love me, that's the root. You're gonna produce things. It's gonna grow up and blossom in your life into obedience. So you've got the root if you love me, then the fruit, if you obey me. But the two things are not equal. They're different. It's a fruit issue and a, and a root issue. And so, you know, and it's interesting when you think about even like a passage like this in, in Matthew 27. Anytime you see Jesus defining the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord. There's your greatest commandment. Then he gets to the, in, in what sort of ways? It always starts with, with all of your heart. Now it's interesting to think about the heart in the Bible. The heart is not the place of our actions. The heart is the place of our affections. The heart is not the place of our performance, but of our preferences. The heart is the organ of our delight, of our enjoyment. This is the number one way that we love God is by enjoying God. If we, ironically, the more you delight in God, the more you're actually going to do for God the more it's gonna play out in that way. But the way that we love God is by delighting him. And don't you wanna love God? But I want to love God more. And the way we do that is by enjoying Jesus, but by drinking from the river of his delights. And here's the third reason why we should find our joy in God, why we should enjoy Jesus. Joy in God is how we glorify God. It's how we glorify God. Think about 1 Corinthians 10, 31, a very popular verse. So whatever you, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, so he's just saying it's a catch-all. In every moment of every kind of, you know, day of your life, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
That's another way to frame the purpose. What, what are we here for? To glorify God. Now, what does it mean to glorify something? To glorify something means that you make that thing look valuable. That person look valuable. You make, you make that, that person look precious or priceless. It's to give weight to something in our lives. So, so how, do we, how do we do that with God? How do, we, how do we glorify God? How do we make him look precious? How do we make him look worthy? of ultimate value. When I was 22 years old, I bumped into a book called Desiring God. And there was one phrase in that book, I discovered it when I was 22 years old, that's really an answer to this question, how do we glorify God? That in a lot of ways really just reset the trajectory of my life. And here was the, frame I, the phrase I came across, the sentence at 22 years old, that answers this question, how, how do we glorify God? God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That we glorify God by enjoying God. We show honor to God. We show the worth of God, the value of God by enjoying him. It's not Jesus over here and joy over there. Jesus and, and the glory of Jesus and our joy are all bound up together. That the way that we glorify God is by keeping our hearts satisfied in God, delighted in God. It's by enjoying Jesus. That's how we glorify him. And, and let me give you an illustration that I think sums up a, a way, just how this practically works itself out. L uh, last Wednesday was Valentine's. And I have four ladies in my home. And uh, so, you know, it was hard work to figure out how are we gonna do all this? What needs to be done to, to make sure we're showing the ladies in our home their worth and their value. And so Caleb and I went uh, to the store and we bought a bunch of roses and we gave roses to every person in our home. We gave a few to each of the, the girls in our home and then we gave a dozen to Laura. And then Caleb and I both wrote a note to all the girls in our house, just expressing to them our, our love and appreciation of them. Now, I want you to imagine Laura coming back home that day and her walking in the house, seeing those roses and her looking at me and asking the question, Rodney, um, Caleb, like, why did y'all do that? Why did y'all do, do the roses? And imagine me looking back at Laura and saying, well, today was Valentine's Day. I mean, I, 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 it's kind of what guys, I guess, are supposed to do on Valentine's Day. So I went and bought you roses. Now imagine that. And then imagine her taking those roses and like throwing those things to the window, right? Because in that moment, that's not glorifying Laura. It's not making much of Laura. It's not, it's not showing the worth of Laura in that moment. But, but imagine she comes home and we have take two on that moment. Rodney, why did you buy those roses? Well, Laura, because outside of Jesus, you are the greatest gift that God has given me. I got you those roses because I love you. I got you those roses because your generosity, your, your prayerfulness, your, your joy and how it's just infectious, your thoughtfulness are just a few of the many tangible ways that God just, he blesses me through you. And look, I, I, I can't find enough words or enough moments like this to be able to look at you and say how, how deeply I love and appreciate you. I mean, Valentine's Day, these flowers are just giving me one small way and reason to look at you and try to communicate and find the words to express how, how I delight in you and love you. Do you see the difference in those two moments? See, th there is a should with a husband. 
But there is a different sort of a should playing itself out. Should number one brings no glory to a wife. It is not expressing the glory and value and honor of that wife. Should number two is doing that, right? So, so think about this in our relationship with God. To glorify God and to show his worth, to show the beauty and value of God, that, that's what to glorify God means. And we're not showing the worth and the value and the glory of God if our relationship is defined by duty. If when God says, why are you doing those things that you're doing? We say, well, I don't know, God. I guess it's just because you ask them. So it's the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do. It's what I'm doing. That brings no glory to God. It's not expressing the value and worth of God. But when you come to God and say, here's the reason, because you are everything to me. Because I value you above every single thing in my life. God, that's why I'm doing it. In that moment, you are glorifying God. You are showing the world his worth in that moment, his value in that moment, that he is a priceless treasure. That's what you're showing the world when we come to God and our relationship is not defined by duty, but it's defined by delight. I love how one person says it. He says it this way, pleasure is the measure of the treasure. It's just a catchy way to say, if we wanna show something to be a treasure, Here's how we do that. We take great pleasure in that thing. We delight our hearts in that. If we want God to look wonderful, here's how we do it, by enjoying God, but by drinking from the river of his delights, by allowing our hearts to go all the way into him so that our souls will be happy in God. That's how we glorify him. And the psalmist is so helpful here. This is the psalmist glorifying God. Psalm 42, one, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. His relationship with God is not defined by duty, but by delight. That is him glorifying God. Psalm 63, one, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That is the psalmist glorifying God. Psalm 27, verse four. One thing if I ask of the Lord, one thing, and here's the one thing he asked, that I will seek after the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts, O Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's a joy-thirsty heart finding its joy and pleasure and delight in God. And when our hearts do that, we are glorifying God. Let let me end with this quote from George Mueller. If you've never um, read anything about George Mueller, he was alive in the 1800s. He was a Christian evangelist, and he also set up a series of orphanages. And throughout his life, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. And uh, if you've never read his biography, you should grab it at some point. It will encourage you in prayer like no other. George Mueller. Listen to him and what he has to say about joy and delight in God and enjoying Jesus. He says it this way. We have, through the goodness of the Lord, been permitted to enter upon another year. Let's just apply that to our time and place. God has seen fit to give you another year. We are on the front end of 2018. So here we are. We're about to live this year. 
the Lord has permitted us to enter upon another year. And the minds of many among us will no doubt be occupied with plans for the future and the various fears of our work and service of the Lord. If our lives are spared, we shall be engaged in these things, the welfare of our families, the prosperity of our businesses. Our work and service for Christ may be considered the most important matters to be attended to. But according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon our attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and 30 years. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not of its vast importance of keeping your soul happy in God. But now after much experience, I specifically commend this point to notice of my younger brothers and sisters in Christ. The secret, the, the key, that the secret of all true and effectual service to God is joy in God. So May 28, 2018, when we look back over it, in a year from now, we look back over 2018, may we look back and see what we have increased in our delight of God. What we have learned more of what it means to drink from the river of his delights. We have found more of what it means to enjoy the pleasures forevermore that are at God's right hand. What we have learned more of what it means to experience the fullness of joy that's in the presence of God. May it be at the end of this year, when we get to look back over it, 2018 has been a year where we Stonegate Church have enjoyed Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. And this is the moment in our service where you just, you get a, an overt opportunity to respond to God. And I'm asking on your behalf that the spirit of God would press into you everything helpful today, wipe away the things that would not be helpful What it look like for you to respond to God today? For some of us in the room, it, it likely means we need this first moment of forsaking the broken cisterns, of turning from our sin and throwing our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
We need to take that decisive step and do that for the very first time. I mean, do you know the, the reason that, that Jesus lived and he died a brutal death on the cross in your place? That the reason he did that was to bring you to God. Where pleasures forevermore can be found. Where as one of God's sons and daughters, you can enjoy the fullness of joy that is God forever. So some of us for the very first time need to, need to turn from our sin and to throw ourselves upon Jesus. And if that's you, then make this your moment of, this, of the decisive faith of turning for sin and throwing yourself upon Jesus. For others in the room, I can't help but think that many of us have settled into a cold way of relating to God. There is no delight of God right now in our hearts. There is no enjoyment of God right now in our hearts. And hear me, if that's you, that is less than what God wants for you. It's less than what, it, what God offers followers of, uh, of him. It's less than that. It's, it's less than biblical Christianity. So, so if this morning you came in and you just kind of gone through the motions, don't let yourself stay there. If you just kind of come in and you sang a few songs, or maybe you just, you couldn't even, you couldn't even muster up the courage to just sing. You just watched other people this morning. If that's you, here's what would be appropriate this morning. To bring that to God, to bring your coldness to God, your calluses to God, your lack of enjoyment to God, to confess that to God, to say, God, this is where I am. I know it's not where I should be. I know this is not the place that my heart should be. And then after you confess that to God, to plead with God, would you restore my delight in you? God, I wanna be able to say along with the psalmist, like the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you. God, I wanna be able to say that this morning. I wanna enjoy you like that this morning. So God, here's my heart where it is. God, will you restore it? And will you bring to me the joy of your salvation? And then we sing. And then we pray. And then we listen to a sermon. And then we seek to obey God. But don't miss the importance of that delight. So, oh God, would you help us today? God, would you help us today to drink from the river of your delights? to enjoy you like that? Oh God, would you meet us in this room this morning and produce that? God, to the power of your spirit, would you open up our hearts and make Jesus the most enjoyable thing in our life? Oh God, do it. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.